In the land of Hyrule there echoes a legend, a legend held dearly by the royal family that tells of a boy, a boy who after battling evil and saving Hyrule crept away from the land that made him legend. So begins Majora's Mask. Link, we are told, has left Hyrule. He is looking for a friend who is implied to be Navi. They parted ways when he finally fulfilled his heroic destiny. Link rides in a dark, foggy forest when he is attacked mugged by two fairies, and the Skull Kid, who is wearing an unusual mask. The Skull Kid steals the Ocarina of Time from Link. When Link comes to, the Skull Kid steals opponent too. Link attempts to save his trusty horse and is dragged through the forest before being forced to continue the chase on foot. Here, control is handed over to us for the first time, and thus begins what could be considered the tutorial section of the game. It is the shortest and most straightforward of any tutorial section we've seen to this point. While Link to the Past funneled players straight into a dungeon and Link's Awakening and Ocarina of Time offered unhurried spaces for exploration and gathering, Majora's Mask offers up a straight line of challenges. There is a sense of urgency here. Link has been robbed, his horse has been stolen, we are chasing the robber. The first section is simple. Five jumps up a stair-like arrangement of logs to enter a hollow tree. Once inside, Link falls. As he tumbles through the darkness, we see a variety of colorful icons fly past. Masks, the Ocarina of Time, clocks, and more. It recalls Alice's fall down the rabbit hole into Wonderland. Link's fall is broken by a flower. The Skull Kid taunts him, claiming he got rid of Link's horse. Then he casts a nightmare-inducing spell. <laughs> An echoing rattle gives way to the rustling of leaves. Link finds himself surrounded by Deku scrubs. They invade his space, and then a giant one chases him. When he awakens from the disturbing vision, Link finds he is transformed. He has become a Deku Scrub. The tutorial continues as the Skull Kid leaves. The fairies get separated and we obtain Link's new companion, Tattle. What follows is a tutorial showcasing Deku Link's abilities. He can dive into large flowers and get shot out again. He will then produce two large helicoptering flowers and briefly fly after the launch into the air, marking the first time a flying or gliding mechanic was introduced into the Zelda series. We go through a series of these launches. Then after walking through a twisting hallway that harkens back to Ocarina of Time, Link enters another world. We find ourselves underneath a structure. 
a large clockwork mechanism works away, and as we head for the door, <laughs> we're greeted by the happy mass salesman. <laughs> you met with a terrible fate, haven't you? The mass salesman explains that the Skull Kid stole a mask from him. He says he knows how to return Link to his former self and will teach it to him if Link gets his mask back. As he speaks, he jumps from position to position with no animation in between. This only adds to the sense of unease to the experience so far in the game. Cinema scene director Takumi Kawagoe described an unusual inspiration for this detail. He said, When I had to create a demo for Majora's Mask, a game that had a very strange atmosphere, my mind found some unusual inspiration. Woody Allen's movie, Husbands and Wives. In it, there's an eccentrically edited scene in which actor Liam Neeson is getting psychotherapy, and Allen has the camera hop around Neeson without a break in the conversation, which creates the strangest impression. So when I created the Majora's demo showing the mask seller, I used a similar idea to capture the spirit of that very bizarre character. With our goal now firmly set, we can exit into the central location of the game, Clocktown. Part 1. The First Three Days Here is where Majora's Mask really begins. We have three days to try and get the mask and the Ocarina of Time from Skull Kid. Tattle points us to the north of Clocktown. There she says we will meet a great fairy who can help. We are set free to explore. At first players are limited to Clocktown. Soldiers stand at every gate and will prevent Link from leaving because he is a child. We have to familiarize ourselves with Clocktown and talk to its characters. To the west side of Clocktown is a shopping district. Here I spoke to a kid who says he's a member of a group called the Bombers. He explains an old man in observatory is the only one who will play with the kids because the other adults are busy preparing for a carnival. He says it's only accessible through a secret route, but asks us not to tell Jim in North Clocktown that he told us about it. I also visited a bank in West Clocktown. Opening an account will allow us to deposit and withdraw rupees. Players will get rewards once certain deposit milestones are reached, including a wallet and a piece of heart will be essential to visit the bank at the end of each three-day cycle to deposit rupees. When the three-day cycle resets, all consumable items and undeposited rupees are stripped from the player. I wasn't a big fan of this idea the first time I played, but I've gotten used to it now. Director Eiji Onuma felt the mechanic was a must. In an interview with IGN in June of 2000, he said, We had come up with all kinds of ideas to make this scenario work. Losing certain items when you travel through time may seem unreasonable at first, but limitations like these are actually the result of many delicate modifications. In the end, that's what makes the game work. So even though it may seem like a mean limitation, it's actually the outcome of many long, heated discussions. So how does this bank work? If Link loses consumable items with each reset, including rupees, how do deposited rupees remain available? Eiji Onuma was asked this by Game Informer in 2015. Here's what he had to say. Part of this is just the most practical answer. The bank needs to maintain your rupees. Otherwise, you would lose them at the end of every three-day cycle, despite the fact that it's really important to build up enough money to buy things in the game. We needed to find some reason for stuff to stay in the game, and we considered the idea that there would be some kind of marking on Link's hand, which you maybe could only see if you shone a blacklight on them. This was talked about, the identification of his account and the current balance in it. When setting up an account, the banker says he is going to stamp Link with special ink. He also asked to take a look at Link each time we make a withdrawal or deposit. 
In North Clock Town, we meet Jim, who is trying to pop a balloon with a pea shooter. He won't speak to us unless we can pop the balloon. We also meet Tingle, a 35-year-old man dressed in a green leotard. He believes he's a fairy. His dad wishes he would grow up. Tingle makes and sells maps. In Majora's Mask, maps for each area must be bought from Tingle, otherwise players won't have access to them. He offers two maps for sale at each location we find him. The map of the area that we are closest to is always the cheaper of the two options. I purchased a map for five rupees. It should be noted that Tingle will become a recurring character within the Zelda series. Inside the Great Fairy Fountain in North Clock Town, we are met with an unusual sight. A large group of strange-looking fairies who are circling around the center of the fountain. These strange fairies are fragments of the Great Fairy. She was broken apart by the Skull Kid. She asks us to find one stray fairy in Clock Town and return it to her so she can return to normal. This is the introduction to a concept that we will revisit in each area of the game, collecting stray fairies to restore a great fairy. In all other cases, the fairies will be found inside dungeons. Here, I found it in East Clock Town. I was able to grab it with the help of a large Deku flower. Returning it to the great fairy restores her. She grants Deku Link a magical ability that allows him to shoot bubbles. We can use these bubbles to pop the balloon for Jim outside. He offers to teach Link the code to the observatory if he can pass a test, a game of hide-and-seek. Players are given until the following dawn to collect all five members of the bombers. I had to go through this game twice because I started my first game in the early morning hours. On the second try, I rounded up all five fairly quickly. Two of the bombers are found in North Clocktown, two in East Clocktown, and one in West Clocktown. After all five are found, they reveal the code to enter the secret route to the observatory. The observatory is found at the other end of an underground waterway. The astronomer allows us to use his telescope to look around and try to find the Skull Kid. We find him atop the clock tower in the center of town. The Skull Kid seems to know that we are watching him and he taunts us. We can also see the moon which has a terrible and menacing face. We watch as a tear falls from the eye of the moon. The astronomer is not sure how the Skull Kid got to the top of the clock tower. It only opens on the night of the carnival, which starts the evening of the third day. He also encourages us to collect the tear which fell from the moon. We have to get to the evening of the third day to reach the Skull Kid. I talk to a scarecrow on the lower level of the observatory to advance time through the power of dance. There are two of these scarecrows, one in the observatory and one in the item shop in West Clocktown. We then have to speak to a Deku merchant near the base of the clock tower. He's looking for a moon tier and he will give us the deed to his flower in exchange. Using the flower, we can fly to the top of the clock tower, netting a piece of heart and advancing to face the Skull Kid. Time is ticking and we only have a few minutes to sort things out. We get a message from Tattle's brother, Tail, get it? With four locations, swamp, mountain, ocean, canyon. We are told to find the four who are there and bring them here. The masked Skull Kid uses magic to draw the moon in faster. We can shoot him with a bubble to get him to drop the ocarina. After collecting the ocarina, we are taught the Song of Time through a flashback with Princess Zelda. She taught it to Link before he left Hyrule. As the moon moves in closer to Termina, Tattle calls out for some help from the Goddess of Time. Considering that we just saw a flashback, we know what to do. The ocarina turns into a set of pipes in the hands of Deku Link, and we play the Song of Time. 
resetting the world back to the dawn of the first day. We return to the masked salesman. Seeing the ocarina, he assumes that Link also acquired his mask and teaches us the Song of Healing. This turns Link back to normal and grants us the Deku Mask, which we can use to transform into Deku Link at any time. This is the first of four transformation masks in the game. Anytime Link dons one of these transformation masks, he screams as if he's in pain. Speaking to Game Informer in 2015, Eiji Onuma explained why. He said, We're talking about masks that were created to contain the memories of people who have died. Often there are things that they wanted to do before they left this world. So becoming them is actually really painful, because it's like you're hosting a really powerful spirit that's coming into you. So who died when we acquired the Deku Mask? Well, it was implied earlier during the tutorial segment that we found the body of the dead Deku. We don't know the identity of this Deku yet, but it will be hinted at later. It doesn't take long for the mask seller to realize that we don't have Majora's Mask, and we're sent out again to get it before Termina is destroyed. Thus begins the Groundhog Day-like loop that this game is built around. Part 2. The Swamp We are directed first to head to the Swamp. It is south of Clocktown. But I took some time to round up some of the masks spread around the world. I collected Cafe's mask from the wife of the mayor, Madame Maroma. This will be used in the most famous and extensive side quest in the game, which I'll cover in a later episode. I also stopped a robbery in North Clocktown at midnight to get the Blast Mask. It can be used in place of a bomb, but it will hurt Link. Getting the Blast Mask also allowed me to buy a bomb bag in West Clocktown. I also acquired Camaro's Mask by playing the Song of Healing for a ghostly dancer in Termina Field. This mask is used to acquire a heart container by dancing with twin dancers from the Gorman Troop of Performers. As a side note, how about that music on Termina Field? It's a new arrangement of the main Legend of Zelda theme, and it may just be the best arrangement that we've heard to this point. Back to the masks. Guru Guru, a man who looks suspiciously like the man we met in the Windmill of Ocarina of Time, gives us the Bremen Mask, which he stole from the leader of an animal troop. We can use it to lead around small animals. I'll tackle that next episode. And returning the stray fairy as a human nets us both a new magical spin attack and the Great Fairy Mask used to track down stray fairies inside dungeons. I also paid a visit to the Astral Observatory again. Upon exited, I was greeted by Jim from the Bombers. He's not sure how Link knew their code, but since we figured it out, he makes Link a member of the Bombers Secret Society of Justice and gives him the Bombers Notebook. This is used to track schedules of non-player characters to complete side quests. I visited the observatory in order to get a moon tier and used it to acquire some paper, the deed from the Deku, to give to a ghostly hand inside the toilet inside the stockpot in in East Clocktown. Don't ask. Or maybe do? This is the first of at least three ghostly hands found inside toilets in the Zelda series. Why are there hands inside toilets? Speaking with Entertainment Weekly in 2012, Shigeru Miyamoto said, It's actually something from a Japanese ghost story. Not a specific ghost story. There are some ghost stories in Japan where, when you are sitting in the bathroom in the traditional style of the Japanese toilet, a hand is actually starting to grab you from beneath. It's a very scary story. Yikes! This hand merely thanks you for the paper and grants a piece of heart. Nice! Now to the swamp. 
On our way there, Link and Tattle come across a drawing on a tree. It depicts the Skull Kid, Tattle, and Tail. Tattle tells us that they drew it when she first met Skull Kid. According to Tattle, the Skull Kid told the fairies upon their first meeting that he had been fighting with friends and they had left him alone. In a flashback, we see this first meeting. The two fairies take shelter in a massive hollow log and turn in a field to escape a rainstorm. Inside the log, they find the Skull Kid cold and shivering. The fairies and Skull Kid huddle together for warmth. We then get a montage of the three playing together. Tattle says she is sure because the Skull Kid was always playing tricks, no one wanted to play with him. We then get a glimpse of the Skull Kid and the fairies mugging the happy mask salesman and the Skull Kid stealing Majora's mask. And once he got this power, Tattle says, trailing off, nothing more needs to be said. There are four locations we must travel to to tackle dungeons and save Termina. Each uses a different arrangement of the same musical theme. You may recognize it as Majora's theme. Take a listen. And now here's the Swamp theme. It begins with a droning bass note before what to me sounds like sort of a string instrument plays the melody of Majora's theme. Sickly sounding horns and wind instruments provide a counter melody. A shack at the entrance of the swamp promises boat rides, but the operator, Koume, is missing. Yes, that Koume, but you know, different. We are directed to inquire at a nearby potion shop. The shop is run by Kotake, who else? And she tells us to look for her sister in the adjacent woods. These are the woods of mystery, and if the music wasn't a hint enough, these are indeed a play on the Lost Woods. As with Ocarina of Time and the original game, the woods are a maze comprised of largely similar screens with exits in multiple directions. We must take the correct exits to proceed forward. In what is perhaps a nod to the haunted wasteland in Ocarina of Time, we are led through the woods by a monkey. We find Koume laying on the ground injured. She was apparently attacked by the Skull Kid. Returning to Kotake's shop, we can get a free bottle with red potion inside, and then pass through the woods a second time to give the potion to Koome. She regains her strength and promises us a free boat ride. As we exit the woods, we are greeted by a group of monkeys who ask for our help in rescuing their brother who has been captured by the Deku after going to a nearby temple to investigate why the water in the swamp has become poisoned. Taking a boat ride, we are able to reach the Deku Palace. Transforming into a Deku, we can go inside. We learn the Deku Princess also traveled to the temple and hasn't returned. The Deku King believes the monkey is responsible and wants the princess back. The monkey's pleas that the princess will fall victim to a monster if no one goes to the temple to save her falls on deaf ears. Outside the king's court, we are again greeted by the monkeys, who tell us that we must get into the cage where their brother is being held through a high up entrance on the outside of the castle. We are told a magic bean seller underground can help get us there. What follows is a stealth sequence. Passing through a door on the right, we enter the palace. We can avoid being seen by Deku guards as we dive down a hole. Here we find the magic bean seller. In a change from Ocarina of Time, we don't need to wait seven years to make the beans grow. Instead, we need to water them. I bought two beans and had to empty my bottle to get water. We can plant the bean in the underground cave to get an optional treasure chest. Outside and to the right of the palace, we can plant another bean. It was the second day when I planted. It always rains on the second day, 
and the rainwater made my bean sprout. Cool, the weather has a real impact this time. Sneaking into the monkey's cage, we learn a song which will reveal the temple, the Sonata of Awakening. With this song, we can use flowers to travel high along the mountainside to reach the woodfall region of the swamp. Along the way, we'll meet the owl, Kipora Gabora, returning from Ocarina of Time. The owl teaches a new song, the Song of Soaring. This is the fast travel song of the game, and it's the only way to fast travel, meaning Majora's Mask is the first game in this series to have just a single fast travel system. One song allows us to access all fast travel points. These fast travel points are owl statues. And speaking of those statues, it's a good idea to talk about the save systems in this game. That's right, systems. There are two separate ways to save your game. Playing the Song of Time and resetting the three-day cycle is the main save system. All saves performed this way are permanent. There's also a second, temporary save system. Link can save at owl statues. This allows him to save mid-quest in a location instead of starting over at Clock Town. This was apparently added for releases outside of Japan. Jason Lung, the English scriptwriter for Majora's Mask, wrote in a Nintendo Power article, The US game benefits from Japanese gamers' feedback, so our version will boast new perks, like a mid-quest save feature, instead of having to save every three days. Traveling into Woodfall, we take on a flying challenge to reach the entrance of the temple. There is an owl statue here, so I activated it, then traveled back to Clock Town to deposit my rupees and reset the clock again. Part 3. Woodfall Temple After resetting the clock, I played the inverted Song of Time. This song and the Song of Double Time are not officially listed in the game's menu. Both songs are hinted at by scarecrows in Clocktown and the Observatory. The inverted Song of Time slows the clock, giving the player more breathing room. Playing the Song of Double Time allows players to skip forward to the next night or dawn. After slowing time, I fast-traveled back to Woodfall, and played the Sonata of Awakening to reveal the temple. The music of the dungeon is heavy on percussion. There are multiple layers of various drums all layered on top of each other. It's a pretty cool groove with a trilling vocal and shrieks occasionally laid over top. The dungeon itself spans two floors. The first floor is comprised of 11 rooms. Four rooms run up the center of the dungeon. The fourth is the boss arena. It's not pictured on the in-game map, but it can be seen by the boss marker placed on it after getting the compass. The rooms vary in size and are laid in a fairly regular grid. The second floor has three rooms. Two rooms are accessible from the main dungeon. A third room on the west is only entered after defeating the boss. The large central room of the dungeon serves as something of a hub. There's a large wooden shrine in the shape of a flower sitting in the center of the room. It has a torch in the middle, but we won't be able to light it until we obtain the dungeon item. The dungeon has sort of a knotted structure which sees players moving back and forth between the east and west wings of the dungeon, crossing through the central room multiple times as they work their way to that item. There are also 15 stray fairies to find. 
They are hidden through the dungeon. Some are floating freely, some are trapped within bubbles that first must be popped, two are in beehives, some are in pots or treasure chests, and at least one is revealed when an enemy is defeated. Despite featuring only two floors, this dungeon has a significant amount of verticality to it. The rooms on the first floor are generally tall with upper and lower levels. As players first enter the dungeon, they'll be limited to the lower levels. Once entering the center room, players are steered east to get a key before looping back and heading into the west wing. The main room of the west wing features narrow bridges over poison water and a block in the central intersection of the bridges. This block will only move one block length in any direction. I pulled it back in order to clear a path to light some torches and burn away a spider web to reach the second floor. The path across the second floor will loop players back to the upper area of the central room. From here, players will loop to the east wing to take on the upper rooms of that side. Here we'll fight the first mini-boss of the dungeon. It's a Dynalfos. These are beefier versions of the lizard men known as Lizalfos. It can breathe fire, but it doesn't have much in the way of defense. I was able to take it out in three hits by moving out of range of its fire attack, then quickly moving in to land a hit. Once we defeat it, the chest with the dungeon item appears. It's the hero's bow. With the bow, we can shoot an eye switch to reach a second previously unreachable room on this floor. Inside that room is a second mini-boss fight. This one is against a giant frog with razor-sharp teeth called Gecko. It's a nice touch that this fight makes full use of Link's deco and human forms. After taking one hit, the boss summons a turtle to ride on. Players must transform into a Deku, then use a flower to shoot up into the air and knock Gecko from the turtle. They then must transform back into a human and shoot Gecko with the bow as it scales the walls. Once the boss falls, players get the boss key. Back in the central room, we shoot an arrow through a torch to light the torch in the center of the flower shrine. This causes it to open up and rise up to the second level. It also spins around. We can shoot another arrow through the torch in the center of the shrine to light a third torch, opening the door to the boss antechamber. After gathering the stray fairies in this room and crossing it, it's time to face the boss. The boss here is Odolwa, the masked jungle warrior. Odolwa is a giant armed with a massive sword and shield. And there's really not much to this fight. There are deco flowers in the room, but you never need to transform. It's an option, but I didn't. Instead, I just walked up to the boss and landed sword hits. Nothing to it. After a few hits, it summoned bug enemies, large beetles which can be killed for heart pickups and stinging moths. I largely ignored these enemies and continued to hit Adolwa, and he fell rather quickly and easily. Once the boss is defeated, we can pick up a heart container and a mask known as Adolwa's remains. This mask cannot be worn. After getting the remains, we are transported to a strange spiritual realm. Link stands atop a tall tree stump that seems to rise above the clouds. Waterfalls stream from the sky. Colorful bubbles float through the air, and a dense fog covers everything. In the distance, Link and Tattle see a giant hidden in the fog. The giant teaches a new song, the Oath to Order.
When Link returns to the physical plane, he finds himself in that previously unreachable room on the second floor. After cutting through a few vines, we can find the Deku Princess. In one of the strangest moments of the game, we scoop her up into a bottle to carry her back to the king and save the monkey. Woo! As the series progressed, the pre-dungeon segments have only gotten more elaborate, and Majora's Mask is easily the longest and most elaborate of any game so far. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Next week we'll tackle a few challenges in the Cleared Swamp. We'll also head up the mountains to the Frozen Goron Village and the Snowhead Dungeon. If you want to follow along, please subscribe. If you're already a subscriber, thanks! You're awesome! I'm Paul Riley. I'll see you next week.